Hello, welcome to unofficial part of the Sports Business Podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. The 100 was one of the sports business stories of the summer in the UK, a new short-form cricket event concept that was created and owned by the ECB, the governing body for the game in England and Wales. And our guests today were central to the planning and execution of the tournament. Beth Barrett-Wilde is head of the 100 Women's Competition and Female Engagement for the ECB, and Rob Cordo is the commercial director of both the 100 and, more recently, of the ECB as a whole. We talk about what went right and what they'd change, the expectations around pay, the marketing of the women's game, building team brands, and the commercial arguments for new formats. If you like the podcast, you'll really like the Unofficial Partner newsletter. Get it today. It comes out every Thursday. Subscribe via Unofficial Partner. Thanks very much for both of your time. Really appreciate it. Obviously, the hundred has been one of the sort of sport business stories, if not the sports business story of the summer in the UK. And I'm really interested. I'm, I'm and I've been thinking about where to start because there's so many sort of jumping off points into it. And I'd like to steer the conversation towards the women's game towards the the women's side of the event I'm less interested in the sort of county cricket politics of it um, which I'm sure you'll be relieved about (laughs) but that sort of feels like a whole different part of the conversation there's a there's a part of me that looks at it and says I'm really interested in the sort of origin of it and the the sort of genesis of the idea so can we sort of go back to that bit and then we'll sort of jump on to the commercial bit and all of the other parts of the story but can you just take us back because obviously you had this hiatus which was a sort of vacuum between the launch and the actual you know you're saying it's going to happen and then it's going to launch because of obvious reasons so just take us back to the very beginning where did the idea come from what was the genesis of it on your mouth no, I was going to say, Rob, you were there at the very start, weren't you? I was maybe a slightly later joiner to the team. So I know that you were around the table sort of when that, that idea came to, to light. So I don't know if you want to jump in. So the, the, the context was, um, from a business point of view, English cricket was really reliant on international cricket, bilateral cricket revenue. And all our eggs were in that basket. And we looked at the likes of India and Australia, and they had a strong international product but they also had an incredibly strong domestic but global uh, competition in the IPL or the Big Bash and so from a business point of view it was about diversifying from an audience point of view you might remember some research that we that was discussed in the the press about five years ago now about how kids were more likely to recognize a WWE wrestlers than the England cricket captain and that came from a Big piece of research, which was really about understanding where cricket was with the next generation. And, and it revealed that there was a big issue with the next generation, that we just weren't as relevant as we wanted to be with the next generation. And that was an issue because we also identified that if you wanted to have a flourishing cricket economy with coaches and, and attenders and volunteers and, and um, people who are going to be part of the game and also invest in the game in the future, you needed to recruit the next generation. So it became very clear that we had to address that that particular issue. Um, but there were barriers. So the, the barriers that we, we understood were three, three main ones, time, complexity, and perception. The, the, the game took too long, whether to, to play it or to watch it, the, the belief was it just took too long. It was too complicated. When you look at a cricket scoreboard as a non-fan, you'll understand what that means. It's just a complex series of numbers before we even get into the language of cricket. And um, and the third thing was there was a perception that cricket was a bit too white and a bit too elitist. Now, I should stress that none of those factors were true of everyone that we spoke to, but but for a lot of people, um, and certainly the people who were on the fringes of cricket or had the potential to be interested in cricket, uh, those were factors. Uh, and those... That, that was kind of the brief. That was kind of the brief for the 100. How do we overcome those, those barriers? And when we'd first um, looked at the, a new competition, it was T20 that we were looking at. But the more and more we, we, we stared this thing down, we started investigating alternatives. And the, 
the hundred format. There, there are a hundred ball formats out there, you know. So the last man stands is is effectively a hundred balls. The the hundred ball idea was kicking about in a number of different places, um, but it was only when we started playing with it and putting it in front of of audiences that we thought that we're we're really onto something here. I'm a bit obsessed with formats, and we did a thing recently with with the twenty first group, and they were they've done, you know, they they have a model for formats and when you then look around at new sports we're in this peculiar time where you've got people are borrowing money at very low rates if you have a good idea the free market is coming in and challenging traditional rights holders across the board you know you've got in lots of different sports so and it's interesting this one because it's it's obviously emerged from a governing body because normally the the conversation is there's a there's a disruptor on the outside we're seeing it with rugby at the moment so that you know the 12s are, it's an idea it feels like an idea that's got a whole load of components in it and probably some money behind it but there's a whole load of questions attached to it about the sport but that's possible now you can then come up with an idea if you've got enough money and you've got sort of credibility in the, in the sport. What's interesting about this one is that it's obviously emerged from the, from the ECB. It's a bit like people talk about Kodak, don't they? About, you know, that it's, it's a rare example where they sort of, they created digital photography within Kodak and it killed their business. So I'm just, it, and I'm not, that's not an analogy. I'm stretching too far, <laughs> but there is a sort of question about what happened when, was it obvious that that was the direction you're going to go when the hundred came? You say, okay, yeah, that sounds like, is that just a point of difference? This has to be different than 2020 because we're doing a new thing and it's going to be too confusing for everyone to launch another 2020 event. So was the for- the format itself became central to the story and it's almost like a culture war now. People are sort of for and against the, you know, the hundred, which in a way is good because it, it means that it's part of the a broad conversation. But just take, just land on that for a minute. Just unpick the hundred, just a stage further. Why and how that happened? Yeah, I can give you my perspective of it, and there'll be different perspectives. But my perspective was that, of course, there were concerns about launching another format. But the way that I rationalised it was the audiences that we, um, the broader audiences that we want to reach, aren't conscious of all these formats. They just think of cricket and their perceptions are bound up in, in cricket. And so there was a, the, the, the issue was with the, the, the existing um, fans and we needed to demonstrate, we needed to make the argument for why we wanted to do this and we need to go out and prove it. And fortunately, we've been able to do that. I think to your point around you know, private equity, the, the ECB has a responsibility to make sure that all of the formats of the game flourish. And the way that we approach that now, after the launch of the 100, is by looking at it as a portfolio. And within that portfolio, there is something for everyone. You know, if you want to go and watch a, a four-day game um, at Old Trafford, Emirates Old Trafford, or if you want to go and watch a, a T20 Blast game at, at Durham, you know, there's something for everyone. And, and that's the way that we've approached it. The, 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 the fear is that, we put all of our energies behind the hundred, but the the right way forward is that we we treat these as a number of different um, competitions that have got a, a role for cricket and a role for our audiences, and we need to demonstrate over the next few years how we're going to make sure that they all flourish. And and one of those things is the the Vitality Blast that that we are already looking at the twentieth edition of the the Blast next year and how we. Um, promote that so i understand why there is fear that 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 a new format comes along and and that is our sole focus but that is that is not the conversations that are going on within the ecb okay so beth when did you join the project gosh feels like a long time ago now so i think it's probably um coming up to three years ago so uh yeah i came in as as head of the the women's competition within the hundreds and i suppose i was brought on board um, just to make sure that um, somebody was waking up every day with that real laser focus on the on the women's game and the women's comp and what the hundred um, as an opportunity could do for women and girls cricket. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's felt like it's been a long three years, but also a very quick three years all at the same time, I think. But yeah, this last summer, I mean, it's, it's been a, a brilliant moment um, for cricket generally, but definitely for the women and girls game. 
when you look at the the women's game, and I think what's interesting about the hundred, and also what's interesting about the women's super league of football, is it's about teams. And I'm interested in what we know about people's relationship to women's teams because we all know and we've seen the, the data about women's sport peaks around the quadrennial events and big events and then fades away. And then you've got individual superstar athletes dotted across sport. But teams is is the bit which is essential, it seems to me, to, to just to build a fandom that has a narrative and a habit. What do we know about that? Yeah, look, I think it's a really interesting point. And I think I, I've actually read and, and listened quite a lot recently about women's sport and how it has a a sort of a more of community feel to it in terms of the following and that kind of collaborative feel, which I think is really important. I think that's what helps to make women's sport um, accessible um, and engaging. But I think that I think that following of a team, I think it's really important, actually. And in terms of like really growing that audience and that fandom behind a particular team on a regular basis that you want to follow and you, you care about um, what their results are. Um, is really key. And I think that's maybe the thing that's been missing, actually. And when we talk about the evolution of women's sport, and you've mentioned it there, like we have these big peak moments around global events in particular. And I think this has definitely been true of women's cricket. Like we've had some really big global highs recently, whether it be the 2017 Women's World Cup here in England and those magical scenes at Lords or the ICC T20 Women's World Cup in Australia um, back in March 2020. Like we have these big moments and then things tend to tail off a little bit. And I think for me, that's where the hundred is an opportunity to bring that that sort of frequency and, and narrative into the summer and to like elongate the women's season is really important. And I think, you know, we've been um, blown away actually by the following that's that's happened behind the team so quickly. I think we've seen it this summer um, in the grounds. Um, sort of, yeah, you go on a match day and like the merch, the merchandise just absolutely flew. And I think it's amazing, you know, like all of our targets around how we thought that would sell. I think, I mean, Rob, you'll be able to jump in with the stats, but I think we've we've exceeded those significantly and we're almost at kind of like year three, year four levels of where we thought we'd be. And I think what really excites me about that, actually, is that you've got young girls and boys buying that kit and that's never happened before. And I think definitely in domestic women's cricket, you know, we've had some success with the Kia Super League, um, which was the, the domestic women's T20 competition that ran for four years. And we started to see sort of the green shoots of that following then. But I think what the 100 has done for the women's game is it's given it that scale and that visibility and that normalisation of, of men and women and young families in particular turning up on a match day and being able to support the women's team and the men's team. That's, that is transformative for our game. And I think we're already seeing it in terms of that following. So I think the point you've made there, Richard, around teams and how important that is and what do we know, I think we're learning um, I think the, um, the, the FA Barclays Women's Super League, I think they're starting to see that following grow. But I think that's the next big bit, actually, in women's team sport is how do we grow those fan bases following particular teams? And I think um, through the 100, hopefully we're, we're onto something in cricket. Just sort of following on that then, is there, in terms of the audience more generally, because you had a couple, a couple of interesting innovations. One was the, the bringing together of you know, match day. Where did that idea was that just something that grew out of the that was a that was that was a lucky accident that was a, a happy yeah it's one of those things so the original 2020 model that was due to happen with the hundreds um so this was sort of pre-pandemic the two competitions were due to happen alongside each other and it's very much under the, that collective umbrella brand of the hundreds and we're very keen on the whole one club two teams philosophy and trying to get people to support the men and the women but it was quite a disparate model actually so we had um, the men's matches, they were all due to be held in eight host venues and the women, they were due to um, be played in, in additional venues across the country, slightly smaller venues to really sort of grow that kind of um, that that following on the ground and to get, you know, decent grounds, crowds, two to three thousand in watching and, and creating that spe- spectacle that way. Now, with the pandemic and everything that happened around that, we we had to make some tough decisions about the competition. And I think. When when COVID hit last March, you know, it was heartbreaking, that decision in particular to cancel the 2020 event. But I think looking back now, the opportunity it actually gave us to take a step back and to look at the women's competition in particular. Like I know I, I remember reading lots at the time about whether whether the pandemic was going to cause this massive halt in momentum behind women's sport in particular and, and what that impact might be. But I think for me, actually, it gave us an opportunity to step back and catch up with momentum 
and catch up with that opportunity to present the game at scale. And I think bringing the two together um, with having the women and the men playing on the same day and having that match day experience um, and being able to co-present the two on the same platform, I think it's given us yeah a massive a massive opportunity to bring scale into the women's competition. And I think it's really actually um, allowed us to to really live our values around gender parity. And I think, you know, when you look at what the 100 is and what it does for, for women's sport and why it is different, I think part of it is that we can bring scale and reach um, through our broadcast partners and through playing in big stage and sort of co-presenting women and men's sport on the same platform, but also with a really authentic purpose message around gender parity and what we're trying to do around women and girls sport in particular. So in terms of that double header model, um, yeah, like we said, it was almost a bit of a, I don't want to be crass, but a little bit of a COVID silver lining, actually. Um, but it, it gave us the opportunity to say, take a step back and think, right, what is the right thing to do for the women's game here? And I think that opportunity to present it at scale um, has, you know, it's played dividends. Like we've seen it through the attendances. You know, I've got lots of notes around my, my room here. Like, gosh, if anybody came in here, they'd think I was crazy. But like, I've got post-it notes everywhere. And on one of them, like we talked about trying to break records and trying to set new standards and trying to be the standard bearer for what what good looks like in women's sport. And I think, you know, over over a quarter of a million people came to watch domestic women's cricket this summer. That's amazing. Like that is amazing, not just in cricket, but in, in women's sport more generally. So, um, yeah, the double header model, it's kind of one of those things, how it came about, maybe not the circumstances you'd want to, to happen. But then in terms of how we have then followed through and delivered on it, um, like I think it's, it's yeah, it's a game changer for, for the women's game. It, it allowed us to deliver for both men and women competitions that were box office and that was something that we wanted to do you know that 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 was what was missing in cricket right something that was box office in this country you you want box office cricket you go to the IPL you go to a world t20 um but it was missing in in um England and Wales and uh, and by putting the the women's matches at the big stadia and attracting big crowds it meant that we could deliver that for both men and women and i think that's really important actually sorry richard like just okay. in terms of like the investment into the product so the investment into what it looks and feels like and having that consistency across both I think you know it's too easy sometimes for uh, historically for maybe investment to go into the men's the men's competitions and and the women's is seen as a little bit of an afterthought whereas I think what we have had the opportunity to do actually by playing the matches in the same venues on the same day for the same prize money and the same kits under the same brands is that consistency and it, it is that message then for young girls and boys coming into the stadium that that cricket is an equal game for both of them so um i think that that product and making sure that the women's games look as blockbuster and feel as blockbuster with the same presentation and the same in-house djs and the leds and the player arch and that those players feel like heroes when they're playing um is really important the media relationship is seems to me very important to this so again touches on all of those things of the product and and what it looks and feels like and for many people it will be the only cricket they saw all year so the bbc's role and that relationship with sky so rob could you just take us into that a bit because that feels like i don't know if that's a one-off or a vision of the future and how that works for both parties but it feels like so central to this because you know i just you, everyone can just jump to anecdotes of just being around the house with you know their kids and suddenly the cricket's on and a st- you know a, a, a conversation develops yeah it's transformational the the relationship with with sky has blossomed in the last few years uh, and they are absolutely integral to the success of the 100 they bought into it from day one so whether it was um, originally Barney Francis or, or Jonathan Lift or, or um, Brian Henderson or Helen Foster, who, who drove that from their side. The team that worked on this was absolutely critical. And they, they introduced a process called Sky Lab. So this is something that exists across the, the, the whole of Sky, a kind of innovation hothouse initiative called Sky Labs. And we spent... In all, about three weeks over the last two years um, as part of this process, uh, developing the ideas for the broadcast production and making sure that it was integrated across event and digital, because historically we didn't do that. It was really transactional. Um, We would just put the cricket on, Sky would come and show it, 
um, and they would do their own thing with promoting it. But we all recognise the importance of building this thing in partnership. And actually their relationship with the BBC was, our relationship with the BBC was, was, was transformed as well and skies was in a very positive place is in a very positive place with with the the partnership around the hundred because sky the host broadcaster and they give the content to bbc and bbc they obviously do their own um, studio and their own presenters uh, around the, the pitch as well but the the way that the bbc bought into it and promoted it to the right sort of audiences that we wanted to reach was again fundamental to the success of it. So looking back, it really has delivered against what we wanted from um, from both of our, our broadcast partners. It's brought, brought the, the professionalism, the expertise, the blockbuster presentation and the, the scale across the Sky Network where we were not just on Sky Sports Cricket, but we were on Sky One, we were on Sky Mix, you know, we, we were Sky across YouTube. the whole piece. Sky YouTube. And the BBC obviously brought that that scale that they do as well. So, yeah, it really has worked well. The obvious question is is what's in it for Sky? I'm just trying to sort of if, because it feels immediately when you see it, you think it's counterintuitive because everything we hear about how television, sports television works, is that you put a paywall around it and you build a subscriber base and you do all of that. That Sky has done brilliantly for 25 years or whatever. So, it's I'm trying to sort of get to why they would do that. I can't speak for Sky, but my uh, understanding of what's attractive about it is is the audience, right? If we can demonstrate that we are reaching wider and younger and more diverse audiences with sport, Mm. that's got to be positive for Sky Sports. So it's an advertising for Sky Sports in front of an audience they wouldn't normally reach? I think that's fair. Uh, I think that they've they've made a real shift uh, into uh, distributing the content, as, as Beth says, across the likes of YouTube as well, which is a big shift for them. Let's get into the, the, the commercial bit, because your job, Rob, is you're commercial head of the 100, but you're also commercial director of the ECB. Um, no longer. So I, I used to do that. Oh, this is two, LinkedIn. Two so LinkedIn is a problem. <laughs> I know. I'm not, sorry. I need to get that a bit tighter. But I, um, I, I used to do the whole thing across uh, the England blast and, and the 100, but it became pretty clear about probably about... 18 months two years ago that that we really needed to um focus on the hundreds so that's my that's my sole focus now and i have a um opposite number called uh russell james who picks up the, the england side of things now but I'm, I'm familiar with the whole piece so the sponsors you know the headline one is obviously kp and that's very central to the look and feel of the whole thing and just take us through that that's a csm deal was it or is that a is that is that is yeah the route that was yeah, that was um, brokered by CSM relationship, and uh, yeah, the, the KP have been we've been involved in conversations with KP for over three years now. Obviously, we were expecting to launch last year, and we didn't. Um, the KP deal is about reach. You know, it is fundamentally about reach, and it's about reaching audiences through their massive penetration of the the UK market. Um, uh, we've been on their packs. We're going to be on their packs this uh, this coming year. You know, they they reach more families than than cricket has done historically. Um, so it's a big partnership around that. They're also very clear about their role and their um, role in driving more participation. We've not really touched on participation yet, but that was a, a big factor in the creation of a flagship like the hundred. Um, to rally around uh, and and connect our participation messages to for things like all stars or dynamos um, to get more kids active and um, and KP are very clear about their role in encouraging people to to get more active through cricket. I mean, and you know the question, but I mean, I, there's no greater fan of crisps and nuts than me, I assure you. <laughs> um, but was there any reservations? You know, if you're looking at savoury snacks, crisps, kids promotion you know what what was there any hesitation there for us that there's there's a balance to it right so we've got this ambition to drive reach we recognize that there's a a big debate around um hfss product um and you know kp have been eyeballed by our board on this you know they presented their plans in that space and the board are, are comfortable that we've got a partner here who's going to help us drive participation but also take a responsible approach to to that category as they move forward so it's definitely a hot topic but um the context of it is 
as the 100, we were really clear that we wanted to break into new categories. Cricket was completely reliant on financial services and booze for, for many, many years. And we chose not to go down that route with um, with the with the 100. In fact, the, the approach that we've taken with our sponsors and our partners is, is really, we see them as part of the marketing mix. Uh, so whether it is KP for that reach or whether it is uh, New Era um, for their caps and the, the credibility that that gives us with that, within a youth audience, there's, a, there's thinking behind each of them. We did partnerships with uh, Lego. We did a partnership with, with Universal and both of those partnerships created content um, linking the hundred to those uh, entertainment products, and again, that was that was a really considered uh, part of the the approach. Okay, um, so Beth, I'm really interested. I've had a couple of conversations on the podcast recently, just about women's sport more generally, and this and hundred comes up quite regularly about the the signal and also the reality of pay and prize money and all of that. And just take us through this, because, again, we've seen lots of different sports launch. And as as Rob, I think, said there, you know, sometimes the women's bit can look like an add on. You know, that's that's um, that's changing, but it's still the case. And the, the other bit, my personal view is that, that, you know, the hundred shouldn't be responsible for the you know transformation in the, the economics of women's sport on its own. So, we, you know, we have, we have to sort of balance expectations. But just take us through where we are, because it's such a sort of topic that just gets enormous amounts of coverage and i'm trying to get to some sort of you know where where what i think about it but just take me where are you on it yeah look, i think the hundred i think one of the really key things and we talked about it at the start of this conversation around the barriers um or the the previous barriers to new people that wider audience engaging in cricket being time complexity and perceptions and i think for me the really key one in there actually is perceptions and like i know sort of I've I've been in love with cricket since I was 10 years old. I was that single girl down at the the cricket club when I was 10, playing with all the boys, um, aspiring to be Mike Atherton because I had no female role models. Um, I was so well, that, that, that shows a bit of a lack of imagination. Though, doesn't it? <laughs> Mike I, was Atherton. Order, I was a top order opening batter <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I wanted to be England captain. So my natural yeah. um, instinct was that I was going to do that for the men's team. So I didn't know there was a women's team. So look, I think, that whole point around perception and, and where we are as a sport, um, it really needed to shift. And I think what the 100 gives us is this amazing, unique second chance to make a brilliant first impression about what the sport is and who it's for. And for me, that is we want cricket to be an equally accessible and relevant sport for men and women, boys and girls. And by launching this new competition um, with these eight new team brands, these exciting brands um, that were engaging and that were heaped in research and identity about those locations. Like we had an opportunity to do something differently. And I think in terms of starting with the men and the women on that equal platform and co-presenting um, the men's and women's teams together, that enabled us um, to almost, yeah, just to signpost, and you said the word their signal, to signal to young girls in particular that this is a sport for them growing up and that they they can have their own role models. And I think what really excited me actually coming out of the competition this summer is if you look at who the, the names on the tip of people's tongues, like when they talk about the 100, they're not actually the men's players, they're the women's players because it's almost like we've unearthed these amazing new stars. So the likes of Alice Capsey, um, Oval Invincibles and um, some of our overseas players, so Jemima Rodriguez at, at Northern Superchargers and to have you know, the commentators, so to have Kevin Peterson saying that Jemmy Rodriguez is his favourite new player, like that's really exciting. And that that's that's a, a shift, actually. That is a game changer in terms of really normalising cricket as a sport for men and women um, on that shared platform. And look, there's lots of stuff that, well, pretty much everything, every decision we make, we've, we've tried to do it through that gender balance lens. So I think prize money is a really, um, a really clear one. That's that real signal of value and how we really value the men's and the women's competitions equally. Um, so that they should get equal prize money um, language. So some of the things that we've done yeah. around language, which is just so important, you know, and I, I know there was the big furore when it first happened around saying batter instead of batsman. And that's kind of come back out because the MCC have actually now changed the laws of the game to take that on board, which I think is really great that the hundred has maybe created a bit of a thought starter there and changed the way of people thinking about the game. 
But those things are just so important in terms of how we signal to a generation of girls in particular that, that cricket is a sport for them. Now, in terms of pay, like I obviously get asked about pay a lot. Like mm-hmm. it is it is kind of it is a, an area of significant disparity between the men and the women. And I think we've always been very open and transparent about that. So we know that this summer the average female salary was 15 percent of the average male salary. Um, and that is something that we are working incredibly hard to to close that gap as quickly as possible. And I think on this, you know, the hundred, the hundred hasn't created unequal pay um, mm. in sport and in cricket. Unequal pay within the hundred is the result of hundreds of years of unequal investment, actually, into women and men's cricket and women and men's sports. And what we are trying to do as a governing body, and not just through the hundred, but through our whole transforming women and girls cricket action plan that we have now. We're trying to transform the game as quickly as we can. And I think what the 100 can do is through that equality of opportunity. So I know that's a really important um, part within all of this. So creating equal opportunities for men and women to play on that same platform um, and to normalise the game and that equal level of marketing investment. And I think that's a really key one for me, actually, is that that equal investment into um, co-presenting the men and the women and really, yes, yeah, signposting that, that cricket is a sport for men and women is really important. So we're, we're working as hard as we can to close that gap. And I think if you just look at the journey that the women's game is on right now, it is an accelerated journey. So I joined the ECB back in 2014 as media manager for the England women's team, actually, at the time. Um, and one of the first press releases I wrote then was um, to announce the first wave of professional um, contracts for the England women's team. So for the first time there, we had 18 women earning a career um, in cricket. Um, and that was, what, seven years ago now. And if you look at what's happened over the last seven years, we now have the England Women's Central Contracts. We have the 100, which has 120 paid female players within it. And we also have our 41 professional domestic contracts for our new regional structure. So when you add all of those things together, we are catching up. We are catching up with the men's game. But the two are still in very, very different stages of their evolution. And all we can do and what we are doing is try to, um, yeah, try to accelerate that evolution as quickly as we can. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely understand that. And, and this is, you know, and I, I think we're talking about, it's interesting that it's probably good news that, that the hundred and, and the ECB is having these debates because it's putting it, you know, that, that subject is raising the profile of that subject. Always the argument was that, the numbers don't stack up. You hear that all the time, you know, well, we can't pay women the same as men because the media numbers aren't the same or the attendance numbers aren't the same. Now the messaging from the hundred is that actually that's shifting. Mm. And I'm wondering how that looks from the dressing room. And the other bit is the, the other, again, almost like a cliche of, of not again, it's beyond sport is, you hear you start to hear people talk about pay restraint and cost control now if i'm a woman cricketer in my early 20s i'd be thinking okay we're about to enter a golden age of cricket and i'm expecting my salary to rise uh to match the demand that i see and i'm being told by everyone that is happening around me whilst at the same time people are saying oh we need to control costs because it's got to be sustainable and that's that's another bit to the the equation so it's a complex jungle but how does it look can you see the argument from a player's perspective that we should be earning much more and we don't want to hear about salary caps for example yeah look, absolutely I think we've seen with uh, the numbers that the women's competition has returned this summer I think um yeah 267,000 um attendance uh, which was approximate I think it's around half of uh, the total attendance for the competition um, broadcast room figures similar so yeah definitely I think that that dressing room perspective um, understandably um, they're going to want to get paid more because they want to see that value that value realized um, and I, I actually I, I was spending a bit of time with some of the players this weekend so I was at a wedding with a few of the England girls and we we're talking about it but look my message to them is that we are looking at it I think Tom Harrison actually went on BBC Breakfast didn't he the day after the, the 100 final and, and announced that we we're going to be increasing the women's salaries so we're going through that process at the moment to work out what the right number is and I think you've said it there Richard like there is a balancing act around um, trying not to grow too quickly and doing it in a sustainable way so I think one of the things we do just have to remember within this is that we 
had the the opening game, the women's opening game, um, within the the competition, um, which was a you know it was a brilliant day. Like it's definitely memories that will live with me for forever. Um, but we had to work incredibly hard um, to market and to promote that game, and I think we ended up with an attendance of around eight thousand, which matched the average attendance through the competition. And and that at the time, you know, we, we were pleased with that. I was really pleased with that. I wanted it to be a few more, of course. But we did have to work really hard to get that audience there and to get that attendance there. So I think there's still a little bit of perhaps a, a perception and reality thing. So, um, you know, we, we need to make sure that we are attracting those people to come and watch the women in standalone occasions. And I think actually, when I think about the bigger picture from it's not just the hundred here, it's how do we now um, promote and work with the England women's um, matches and those England women's internationals. Like we have a massive opportunity next year in particular through the Commonwealth Games and the visibility that that's going to bring to the sport. Um, so how do we how do we sort of transcend and, and sort of yeah transition some of the audience from the hundred into those England women's matches? Because I think that's where we can start really kind of realising the, the commercial value um, that exists in the women's game. And I think we still have we do still have a lot of work to do. Like there is still there is still, I think, a, a, a gap um, between sort of what people think and, and what they do. So we, we still need to try and encourage as best as we can, uh, working with the marketing teams, et cetera, to get those people to, to buy their ticket and come. Because it's, it's one of my great frustrations, actually, when you see the sort of the equal pay like conversation on social media in particular and sort of, yeah, and, and, and brilliant that people are sort of calling it out and like we want to be held to account for that. But there is part of me being like, right, OK, well, how do we get to equal pay? Well, you know, the main inputs into that are sort of around broadcast revenue, they're around ticket sales and they're around commercial partners. Ticket sales is such a key part of that. So, you know, I just uh, sort of, I guess, a bit of a rallying call to anybody listening to this. If like, if you really want to see commerciality happen in women's sport, we we need people to start buying a ticket and coming and watching. And I think even just seeing some of the the WSL matches um, early this this season in in the football, like they've got a brilliant broadcast deal, and I'm sure those numbers are flying. But if you look at the attendances in stadia, like they're still hovering around where they kind of always were. So. I think there's still a lot of work to do, actually, in terms of really commercialising um, women's sport. And that applies to men and women, right? Come and watch women's sport. Come and be part of it. Bring your family, bring your friends. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's not just about women turning up to watch women's sport. I think everybody, yeah, everybody knows that. It is, yeah, it's, it's that wider piece. Like, yeah, bring your families, bring um, bring everybody. Like, it's it's a good, like, we've seen the, the quality is there now. And I think that's the other, actually, the other part of the argument when people talk about women's sport and they talk about, oh, well, the numbers don't add up and the audiences aren't there. The other part that I often hear is, well, it's, it's just not as good as men's sport. It's just not, the quality's not there. And I think actually, hopefully what we've been able to do this summer is demonstrate that, you know, women's cricket is really good. Like we had some brilliant games, like some really high quality um, bits of skill in there. And I think that's the the other shift in perception that we need to make actually is that this is something that, um, that you want to come and watch and then that goes back to linking into right well how do you present it you have to present it as a premier um, as a premier product which is hopefully what we've been able to do um, through how we've positioned the 100 this summer. Beth I was going to ask you about just that wedding you went to <laughs> did they did they ask about Tom Harrison and the senior exec bonus was uh, that part of the conversation? No they, they did not they did not um, no there was there's no conversation about that but um Look, they're very attuned. I think it's brilliant. I think that's that's another big shift that's happened actually is is around the the players having that voice now. And I think maybe historically, you know, there was kind of the uh, that gratefulness for whatever whatever we got. Like, and I, I bracket myself in that from sort of my playing days. You know, we were just happy to be there, and it was just great that we were being given an opportunity. Whereas, like, they do have a voice now, and I think that's that's really good that they they feel like that they can have those conversations and that they can have those direct conversations with me about um, yeah, how much they're going to get paid next summer. So um, yeah, hopefully that will continue. Rob, just extending that, the, the point that Beth made there about when you're looking and having conversations with commercial partners, sponsors um, and the media and sky, you've got purpose is, is become so central to that conversation and one of the conversations I had uh, recently on the podcast was um, around the, the the role women play in adding purpose to a rights holders brand. And we were talking about the UFC as an extreme example of this. And actually women fighters are changing, have changed the perception of it from being just blokes beating the shit out of each other in a cage to having, you know, 
so women beating the shit out of each other in a cage, but you know, there is a different audience for it. Now, when, and, and part of this is Jen McLaren's uh, book, very good book, actually, um, about you women in the UFC, but the application of it is that the women are carrying a greater level of the marketing load when you are t- talking, because it's not a linear relationship. It's not all about eyeballs. So brands want a purpose and they like women's sport because of, as Beth said earlier, the broader nature of the signal, but also it just gives it a different t- tone of the conversation. But yet they're not rewarded for that. The men are still over-rewarded for the money that comes in the front door of the ECB. Just, I guess my question is, has the conversation changed when you talk about talking to sponsors about cricket? Do they mention women's cricket now? And has that altered? You've been there a while. And you used to be at Heineken and Cider. Yeah. You used to run yeah. Copperberg. I've looked, see, LinkedIn is reliable <laughs> to bit, an extent. That, bit, that is true. Yeah, that <laughs> bit is true. You haven't made up your, you know, completely falsified your whole back backstory. But... Is, has that altered? So has have the, the basic question is, has women women's cricket altered the conversation with sponsors? And do they come to you wanting a conversation about women only? And so unbundling is another question because we're again, that's a theme of women's sport in terms of can we unbundle, uncouple, decouple the, the rights on the, from a commercial perspective? It's a really good question. And it's a topic of conversation that, um, that goes on a lot within ECB. To take you back a few years, you're absolutely right. Uh, I'm not going to names, I'm not naming shame, but there were instances, plural, where brands refused to pay anything additional for women's rights. This is a few years ago. Um, That has changed, which is great. We have consciously, with the 100, gone to the market with with a combined product men and women. This is gender balance, gender gender parity, that's what we're that's what we're after. And that has that has performed very well in the market. And it's it's that is now the right sort of conversation um with the right sort of brands that we want to reach. There are occasions that we are investigating with different parts of the portfolio. Um England cricket for example. Uh is there more that we can do with that property? to uh, drive more focus from relevant brands. And that is a live conversation as well. So again, coming back to portfolio, that allows us to play different tunes um, with different parts, different competitions um, to explore the market. From the point of view of the 100 though, I think it's, it's unlikely that we will unbundle because it is so integral to what we're trying to deliver, this gender balance. And I think it would undermine some brands uh, who have engaged in the 100, if we then put in an additional layer, which said X brand is coming in just to promote the women's game, then they might feel, well, hold on, what's my role within that? So I'm really clear that for the 100, it's, um, it's about balance. That's a, that's a big part of the mix. It's a big part of what the, the, the idea is all about. Uh, and that is less the case with other sports i recognize that but it's each their own final question i went to an event love you know at the oval i like some of it i'm a i'm a cricket nut i played you know like you a KP nut. <laughs> <laughs> you see it must be working on me it's working on and you were at the oval did you say? Uh, exactly. I yeah. That's what funny, Rob. Yeah, you should be in sponsorship. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> bits of it I really liked. Bits of it I didn't. What would you? What's going to stay? What? What would? The, what have you learned about just the experience of the fan in the in the stadium? What are you going to keep and what are you going to quietly drop? What didn't you like? <laughs> yeah, you tell us, Richard. We'll just make some notes. Oh, well, look, look at me. I'm a sort of, you know, I yeah. Um, I mean, it comes down to, is it aimed at me? Actually, fundamentally, I w- it took me a while, this sounds really daft, to understand what was going on. And in the simplification process of it, 
I couldn't work out where the state of the game, and that comes from someone who knows cricket. So on a very, and I was sitting there, and I remember I was there with Chris Hurst, Richard Ayres, Stephen Gould, all of us like and know cricket. And they were really loving it. And I was sitting there thinking, I'm not, I don't know. I don't get this. I'm not, I'm not there. And then by the end of it, and and actually I enjoyed it more on television than I did at the event. Mm. But I've just, I guess the question for you, for, for you is, is there anything that you would alter? I think we will, I think we will evolve. Um, You know, the the beauty of the hundred is that it is, uh, it has evolved from cricket and it will continue to evolve. Uh, So I think we'll continue to, listen to uh, to feedback. Um, in fact, we're going to go back into Skylabs um, before the end of the year. Who runs Skylabs, by the way? I've never heard of it before. Yeah, so it's a, it's a uh, it's kind of initiative within Sky. It's kind of internal consultancy. It's brilliant. Very good. It's brilliant. <laughs> um, so we'll go back into we'll go back into Skylabs and we'll we'll we'll, we'll take a lot of this on board. It, some of the feedback about the broadcast graphics was quite negative to start, but the, the the sense was exactly as you went through, there's going to be a period of kind of calibration or, or readjustment to this new way of presenting the game. Um, and uh, we're not going to react immediately, but we'll take stock uh, after the competition. And, and that's what we did. So I think we will definitely have a look at that. I think some things will, some things we can tighten up with the, the match presentation. We're trying to cram an awful lot in. Uh, and maybe sometimes that that's at the expense of making sure people know exactly what is going on. One thing we'd really like to do is tell more stories about the players. So we've got great content on um, all of these these players, and whether we do that digitally or whether we do that um, at the ground or on broadcast, that that's again a big part of how we make the game more relevant to more people by by telling those sorts of stories. Yeah, I think from my side, there's a couple of things. I think um, just in terms of the fact, like, we did launch this whole thing in the middle of a pandemic this Mm. year, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. But from an overseas player's perspective, so, um, you know, we didn't quite end up with the the original lineup of overseas stars that we thought we were going to have. And I think especially in the women's competition, you know, we were due to have Elise Perry, Meg Lanning, um, Beth Mooney and Co. So um, hopefully we'll see them back next year. Um, I think with the Commonwealth Games happening um, immediately prior to the hundred, we, we're yeah optimistic that we'll get into a good place with that. Um, I think the other one that um, I had a bit of feedback from both sort of players and also um, people in ground and people on the telly was um, when the umpire held up the white card to mark the end yeah. of the a batch of five and sort of people trying to work out what that was all about. Um, so I think we maybe need to go back and, and look at what that gesture is perhaps. But like the purpose of that is primarily for the scorers to know that that is the end of a legal set of five. Um, we went through a few iterations of what that was. I think originally we had a pink card, but we decided we couldn't have a pink card because it would look like somebody holding up a red card to the hundred, which would not be good. So we went with a white card, um, which uh, we might change into some sort of dance move or something. I don't know. We'd run out of hand signals. There are so many hand signals that the umpires do. So uh, that's like quite, a, I guess, a, a playing condition type thing that we'll look at. Um, but for me, I think, yeah, look, the, the thing that's really exciting is around that that overseas player lineup that hopefully we'll get. Um, next year just to to sort of really even etch up even further that quality and that that stardust element one of the things actually i was thinking was that the women's hundred has the potential to be more like the ipl in terms of it being a global center for the for the game because the men's game is more politically difficult to get the indians here and all the rest of it so for it to really Fly as a question, you know, I talked to Tom Harrison on the podcast and we were, we were talking about this in terms of just the way in which from a, from a business point of view, are these franchises going to be then sort of become like IPL franchises? Are they going to be sort of commercially owned and all of that? And that's, that's a hypothetical that I've got in the back of my mind that, that, that feels like that's a direction, but that's longer term. But just in terms of the short term, it needs to be the international bit is quite an interesting question, isn't it? And I, I guess just with everyone being so busy and the calendars and the rest of it, it must be a headache. Sorry, Richard, what, what do you mean the international bit? Just in terms of getting global players playing yeah. in the 100. Yeah, yeah it's getting, a challenge. You, know, you, need, you need Virat Kohli there to make it, to, to signal that this is the centre of the world this week, you know, for this month. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel that one of the most satisfying things that came out of the 
inaugural competition was the fact that, that it was just so entertaining and, and that th- those were the players that we had and they, they really stepped up and they, they provided such an incredible show for everyone. Um, as Beth says, we'll get uh, some more big names next year and, and that might raise the performance uh, standards by you know, 15-20% um, and it will be a, another great spectacle. But I think we've got to take our hats off to those players that did come in challenging circumstances and, and really provided such a spectacle, spectacle for everyone. Final, final question. There was a, there was <laughs> a sort of, there's a, there's a sense of, of sometimes when I, again, go just drawing back from cricket and the ECB and just looking at this in the broader context of, of the sports marketing world. Again, I think it's been a really interesting process and I've looked at it quite closely and, you know, from afar, if you can look at something closely from afar. <laughs> and you've got this sense that I quite often say this, but that, in the in the journey from it to becoming a sort of marketing sort of uh, organization, quite often sports organizations lose seem to lose confidence in the core sport. I wonder what your view on that is. That sometimes you sort of think they're they're gonna there is a uh, we're, we're going to make it into an entertainment product, and we throw the sort of kitchen sink at it. But actually, the sport itself is neglected. Any any view on that, or is that just my ramblings? Again, I can only give my own perspective of this, right? We we live in an environment which is a governing body, and we live in an environment where people come to work to put on cricket, regardless of format, um, for five, six months a season nowadays. And the amount of work that goes on behind the scenes on the county championship, international cricket, uh, the, the Royal London One Day Cup, you know, the, these things do not just happen there's a huge amount of work that goes on i think often people think that we can control things more than we can we are like any business subject to the 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 trends um of society and of our audiences and we've got to respond to that and that's what the hundred is about but there's also a belief that things like the hundred help to fund other parts of cricket uh, and there's a lot of people at, at the ECB who are um, massive fans of the championship or test cricket or T20. So I don't think that will go away. I think we'll always get criticism but it, 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 and challenge, and that's fair. Um, but I think that the focus on cricket in all formats and for, for all standards is, 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 is part of what makes the ECB unique, actually. It's not like the Premier League or the the RFU where they're only responsible for different parts of the games and they don't own the the kind of Premier League or the Premier League equivalent. So the ECB is unique. It it, it looks after the whole game and the the buck stops with the ECB. Okay. Well, listen, Rob, Beth, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. That was good. Thanks, Richard. That was really fun. It's nice to put a name to um, a face, actually, Richard. I listen to all of your podcasts. Um, and you don't look anything like I expected you to, actually. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I'm not going to ask what you expected. It's up to you how you <laughs> <interpret> it. <laughs> oh, God, we'll, we'll, we'll stop there because that's, that's just a frightening, frightening thought. But listen, thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate no, it. Thank you.